We'll hear argument next to number 90-1947, John K. Yee versus the City of Escondido. Mr. Gigallo, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the tenant who sold the coach to Mrs. Morrison in the Azul case got $77,000 for a $5,000 coach, and we proved at trial in that case that it was the direct result of vacancy control, could not have occurred without vacancy control, and all the legal arguments in the world can't disguise that fact. Now, how did it happen? It happened because the rent control ordinance gives two sets of rights in the property to the tenant and residents. The first are possessory and the second relate to rents. What are those possessory rights? The right to occupy at a reduced rate in perpetuity, and secondly, the right for the first time to sell that right without the consent of the landlord to an incoming tenant. With respect to the rents, the tenant receives the right to increase the rents, to collect the increase, and to keep the proceeds so collected. Do you think the... Uh Ordinance uh, requires the uh, the owner of the property to rent in perpetuity. Yes, sir. Can't, can't, can't the landlord decide just to not to use the property for this purpose anymore? Uh, no, uh, not effectively. It's not a practical alternative. The rea well, reality is that is what the what, is that what the ordinance says, or you say it's just an impractical? No, what happens is that there is a state system for going out of business that, in conjunction with local ordinances, precludes that alternative as a practical reality. For example, I'm in a case where we have finished four years of administrative hearings where we've just gotten the administrative record, and the condition that they imposed to going out of the business was that we pay the in-place value, exactly the harm that we're talking about here, and now we've got three or four more years of litigation while we try to contest the constitutional validity of imposing a condition of that nature upon us uh, as a condition for our going out of business. It's not anyway, a practical the, alternative. Anyway, that's, that's, the, is, that's the state law that... Well, it happens... Not the ordinance. Not no, but the it law. happens to be the case that the local agency is given the right under state law to impose the conditions, and it's the local agency that then does impose the conditions. But it, it will be a practical alternative if you win this other case, which I'm sure you expect to win, right? I would have to come all the way back here in about seven years, Your Honor. But, but we really don't know that it's not a practical alternative. You... You assert that it ought to be a practical alternative. You're asserting that in another case. I know that right now nobody's gotten out of business and that we've been litigating but it for years. If you win, years. everybody will know it is a practical alternative. If we win in this case or the subsequent case? Well, this, both of them. Uh, if, we win in this, if we win in this case, we'll shortcut the other one because we will have established that they didn't have the right to impose that condition. It is an unconstitutional taking. But we're talking about a transfer of rights here. This is not the garden variety police power case. Is that other that, case in the appellate courts or still before the agency? We, have, we just got the administrative record four years down the line, Your Honor. So we're filing in the lower courts in California at this moment. Not a reported case, then? Not at this time, it is not. We're talking about a transfer of rights, not a garden variety police power case where there's a diminution of the value of the property. This is out-and-out -out expropriation of real property rights and a transfer to a favorite group Mr. of citizens. Why don't you slow down a little bit in your presentation? I think we could follow you more easily. Did this case uh, go to trial? Uh, no, this case did not. We, the, it's the a pleadings was, case. A demur was sustained. Correct. And we're here on the pleadings. And as a consequence, we have to look to the pleadings. Those are the facts that are properly before the court. And what do the pleadings tell us? That an ordinance was passed. The tenants were given the right to occupy at a reduced rate. They can sell that right for the first time to an incoming tenant that they do sell it, and that they receive a profit when they sell it by selling the coach for more than it's worth, and that premium value represents the value of the interest of property that are transferred under the ordinance. What is the city's defense to this claim? Stripped of its sociology, it's basically this, that the tenants own a portable structure which they bring onto my client's land on wheels. While it's parked on my client's land, they put it on jacks. And when it gets old enough, or if it becomes op obsolescence and the tenant decides to remove it, they put wheels under it again, and they haul it off. 
And the city says, under the circumstances, this is such a unique relationship that we are justified in creating thousands of estates in land and transferring the value to the tenants who own the portable structures. And what are the justifications given for this? That is, one, it preserves low and moderate income housing, and two, it protects the investment. We need to examine this claim from a number of perspectives. First, three federal courts of appeal have held this to be a physical taking because it is. The local ordinance requires that we renew and that we cannot terminate any leases for present tenants as well as prospective tenants. Would, and if, you, would you describe exactly what it is that is the physical taking here? Because I have a little trouble grasping that. Yes, Your Honor. The ordinance by itself achieves this effect. You have, prior to the passage of the ordinance, the park owner has effective ability to control who will get an invitation onto his land. And if I could put this in context, it is the Florida Power case that says it's the invitation that makes the difference. And Loretto tells us the invitation has to be offered by someone who has the authority to give the invitation. As this court will recall in Loretto, the prior owner, the cable company was not a stranger to the premises. The prior owner had given consent to be there. Then Mrs. Loretto came on, bought the property, looked around, told the cable company, we're revoking your invitation. And under those circumstances, this court had no problem in finding that c continued occupancy under compulsion of the law was a physical per se taking. Exactly the same thing occurs here. The owner remains the same, the tenants are different, and the departing tenant who doesn't have the right but for the law invites the incoming tenant in who's then an interloper with a government license and the ordinance causes the uh, owner to become disabled from controlling that access and the way it... So you, you say that the incoming tenant is the one who is physically occupying the property against the will of the owner corresponding to the cable company in, in Loretto? Certainly the incoming tenant, you could obviously argue in a typical rent control case, which this is not, that it's the holdover tenant as well. But the incoming tenant has been invited onto the premises by the departing tenant. He doesn't have the authority to extend the invitation. Before the ordinance was passed, the park owner had the uh, power and the right to control who would get an invitation onto his property because he would exercise that control by insisting that the incoming tenant agree to rental terms. And if that incoming tenant did not agree to the rental terms, the park owner had every right not to allow him onto the property or to extend the invitation. Is, is, is every anti-discrimination ordinance a taking of property then? No, it's not, Your Honor, and we're not That's claiming... what they do. They say you can't, uh, you can't keep uh, people uh, off, your, off your property or out of your business uh, just because you don't like their race, religion, or nationality. Is we're that a taking? We're certainly not claiming that kind of right here. I, I guess you weren't, but tell me why it's any different. Because there are overriding and overarching values there. It that, becomes that are a taking if there's an overarching. It, 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 it ceases to become a taking if there's an overarching value. I thought it was still a taking. But, well, it can be the case, of course, that the person is there on the premises, but I believe that we finally decide that there are, there are purposes that are so su uh, substantial and overarching that we can uh, require that people be treated without being discriminated against. Well, we've never held. Uh, so far as I know, um, Mr. Giello, that uh, when you're talking about a physical taking, that the governmental purpose made any different at all, any difference at all, however magnificent it may have been or however poor it may have been. We, I don't believe we've ever used governmental purpose as a basis for evaluating whether there's been a physical occupation. Well, that's true. And, and in terms of determining... Then, then how does your answer to Justice Scalia make any sense? Well, the problem that uh, I'm, I'm facing here is we are facing two fundamental kinds of rights that collide with each other, and that case is not the case that's presently before the court. And so I can't resolve in an instant the, the colliding of those particular rights. I don't know how that will come down, when that becomes an issue. Well, can, I, can't, can't you say that uh, an, an anti-discrimination ordinance, something like an ordinary rent control ordinance limits the authority of the, of the, of the landowner. Uh, he can't charge exactly what he wants, uh, but uh, in, in a rent control case. But that uh, we've upheld ordinary rent control as not, not anything like a physical occupation. Correct. And this is absolutely unlike ordinary rent control because here the uh, 
owner of the property loses the ability to decide who's going to occupy his property. The tenant in a typical rent control case does not have the power to determine the identity of the new tenant, to set the terms of the occupancy in terms of its rent, nor do they have the right to sell the, occup uh, the right to occupy at a reduced rate. Well, to a large extent, that's true in the anti-discrimination ordinance. Is, is the difference uh, the loss in value to the owner? No, it's not. Uh, in the case of the physical taking, it could well be the case that there would be insignificant loss of value and it still would be a physical taking. The, um, the difference is that we're making... So we're not concerned here with the extent to which the um, uh, economic expectations and, and, the, and the economic real values of the owner are affected? Well, we're concerned, of course, if we look at it as a regulatory taking, which I'll discuss in a few minutes, but we are not concerned with it if it's viewed as the three lower courts of appeal viewed it as a physical taking, because there the economic consequences are not uh, particularly relevant in, res in resolving the issue of whether or not the, con the, uh, the conduct is unconstitutional. Counsel, can I ask you one question, sort of a background question? As I understand it, some of the restrictions that make ownership costly in this area are imposed by a statute, the California Mobile Home Residency Law. And, and I understand you haven't challenged that statute. Is it your position that if that statute were repealed entirely, that you would still have a just as strong a case? Oh, of course, because the ordinance itself provides for rent control and eviction control. It states that we cannot refuse to renew, nor can we terminate any lease for present tenants or any prospective purchasers as to all spaces not covered by the Mobile Home Park Residency Law. So that if tomorrow or two hours ago, the state Mobile Home Park Residency Law were repealed, the ordinance itself would accomplish exactly the same end. Now, I don't see how the rent con how the rent control has anything to do with your taking claim. Is, is that an essential part? I mean, wouldn't it be a taking whether or not they, they fixed the rents? You mean, and, and they allowed the well, tenant? They, they just say people and people that are that are currently occupying, you must allow to continue to occupy, and you can't turn down future tenants for uh, you know. You know. If they said that, you may have, may have just a physical taking on that basis. But we have a different mechanism that works here. After the ordinance is passed, the park owner is no longer free to tell the incoming tenant, I will invite you onto these premises if but only if we come to an agreement on rental terms. And if we do not, prior to the passage of the ordinance, the park owner has the right to tell the tenant not to come on. That changes. Once the ordinance is passed, the tenant for the first time is vested with the absolute right to invite the tenant on without a veto power of any kind over the park owner, and the landowner is stripped of his right and his power well, it's not to condition absolute. his consent. Excuse me, it's not absolute, is it? I mean, he has the, he has the right to refuse if he has reason to believe or reason to, uh, to prove, the basis to prove, uh, that, the, uh, that the new tenant probably won't or cannot pay the rent or won't otherwise abide by the rules of the park. So it's not an absolute yeah, right. That's correct, and, and I stand corrected on that. There are those mild, modern, strike that, minor um, abilities on the part of the park owner to still control who comes on. But the plain fact is that the massive loss of control that he experienced by being able to say to somebody, unless we come to terms that are agreeable, you can't come on, has been transferred to the tenant and the, and the park owner himself has been stripped of his right and his power. But in an ordinary rent control ordinance, uh, which you say you don't challenge and which the court has upheld, uh, the landowner or the uh, landlord does not have the right to insist on uh, rental terms uh, that, that he wishes to impose. But what he can do is he can still distribute the, uh, the benefits in a variety of ways. He could give the apartment with its uh, rent control benefits to his friends, to his relatives. He controls the distribution of the benefits, and he doesn't have to accept onto his premises any particular tenant as long as he has a reasonable and non-discriminatory basis for doing so. But here, the landlord can no longer exclude he has lost the right to exclude, and the ordinance transfers that right, and thus it's a physical taking. With respect to the... Uh, uh, to whom was that right transferred? It was transferred to the tenant, Your Honor, who now has the right to determine who comes in by selling his... Transfers between landlord and tenant, not uh, with the city of Escondido. The city of Escondido didn't get the transfer, it causes the transfer. 
It didn't get the transferred value. We can also look at takings as a continuum with Loretto on the one end and Agins on the other and ask ourselves where we have an expropriation of the right to impose rent increases, collect the rent increases, and keep them, and transfer that right over to the departing tenant, have we reached that point that Hodel versus Irving tells us, that we have a fundamental attribute of property which is expropriated or extinguished? We believe so, and it's a taking. Let's look at Mrs. Morrison's case again. The tenant got $77,000, which um, with a cap rate of 10 comes out to about 650 a month. Her rent was 340. He took two-thirds of the rent due to the property, pocketed it, and left the premises. And we submit that under those circumstances, that is an out-and-out -out expropriation of property and a taking under the Fifth Amendment. But is that different? I, I can remember back many years ago during rent control when the tenant could get a lot of money for the furniture when there'd be a new tenant coming in. Sell refrigerator. Is that basically different? It looks a lot like it, that it's key money. We, that's what it was called in an apartment yeah. context. And re generally did, rendered did illegal. Did that constitute a taking in that context? It sure did. It did. Yes. And with respect to... What about uh, price controls on theater tickets? Uh, let's assume a municipality does that and the tickets uh, can't be sold above $20. And, of course, they're immediately scalped for $100 if, uh, if uh, there's a scarcity of them. Is, is that a taking of property? Uh, conceivably, it could be. I think you have to look at the purpose. You have to say more than it's the same thing yes. that you're talking about um, here, isn't it? Yes, if you look at the purpose, because the purpose is not served of keeping the prices down to the $10 or whatever the limit was, $20 on the tickets, absent a, a justifying purpose. Any, any regulation that enables somebody else other than the per person who, without the regulation, would make the profit, to make the profit is a taking? Not necessarily. Here we have other... Uh, elements. We've got a transfer of in an interest in real property in order to create then the value or the wealth. And that transfer of the interest in real property, that is the right to determine who will occupy it, and an elimination of the right to exclude makes it fundamentally different than just a price control kind of case. And that's why rent control in this context, in the mobile home park context, involves the transfer of real property interest to people who have personal property. Would the constitutionality be saved if the city went ahead and regulated the transfer, the price of the, uh, of the sale of the homes? No, it Put wouldn't. Put a on it so the, so the tenant couldn't get it. No, it wouldn't. You'd still have the physical taking. It's the departing tenant who can determine the who profit will profit by the, by the tenant is not a part of your case. Then. It, it is a part of our case, but if we address if the hypothetical... If putting a ceiling on it, doesn't solve the problem. But if you... If, I'm just addressing the hypothetical, and that is that yeah. if you put a limit on the price you would still have a physical taking because the departing tenant still determines who's invited onto the property and the owner has lost the power to exclude. Now under Nolan, we have a, a, the test is substantially advanced a legitimate governmental interest. What is the governmental interest in Mrs. Morrison's case when a tenant takes $77,000, puts it in his pocket, and leaves the premises forever burdened with the additional cost of occupancy? I submit there is no public purpose, and if you do it one time or 3,000 times, a private purpose does not become a public purpose. But the, but the uh, city also gives us two other reasons. One is to preserve low and moderate income housing. That's by and large disappeared from the briefs. We've had two trials on the issue. We proved to the trial court's satisfaction that it... I thought this came up on demur. Yes, this case did come up on demur, Your Honor. I'm referring to the, uh, the facts in the Azul case, which were noted the in the, the Azul Pacifico versus the City of Los Angeles The case. Ninth Circuit case? Yes, that's correct, Your Honor. So when you speak of Mrs. Morrison, you're not talking about a party to this case. I'm talking about the example used by Judge Kaczynski in his decision to illustrate the core problem of the case, that there's a massive transfer of wealth to a departing tenant who owns a depreciating asset. And so, was that based on a trial transcript there? Yes, it was. I took her deposition, Your Honor, and what occurred was that uh, she testified. She bought the coach. I asked her, you paid 70 all, all I wanted to find out was whether it was based on a trial transcript. I've now found that out. Okay, fine. Uh, Thank you, Your Honor. And uh, so why is it relevant in this case? Because it shows what happens in fact as, a, as what is alleged in theory in this case. We, we've, we were thrown out on the pleadings. We never had an opportunity to prove the facts, but the Azul case provided us with the, the factual context we need to show how this actually occurs, as opposed to just stating that it occurs as a matter of theory. 
You've said twice, I think, that three courts of appeals agree with you? That's correct. Uh, uh, two Ninth Circuit decisions and the Third Circuit in Pinewood versus... Well, that's not three courts of appeals. That's just two. Okay, two courts of appeal. Two different panels at two different times in the Ninth Circuit. Well, maybe, maybe the Ninth Circuit is different. Okay. <laughs> Could be. When I appear before the different panels, sometimes it seems like it. In any event, the, <clears throat> the purpose is to preserve low and moderate income housing, we're told. And all of a sudden, that uh, pretty much has disappeared because we demonstrated that didn't occur. Uh, so you, you, every time you, you say there's been a massive transfer of wealth, I, I mean, except for the adjective massive, there is always a transfer of wealth whenever there's price control. It's the object of price control. That's correct, but what you so don't... Every, every price control uh, uh, does, does what you're talking about. I no, mean, no. The consumer, the consumer uh, uh, gets, uh, gets wealth which he would otherwise be out. But he doesn't get an estate in the provider's land. They didn't give him a life estate in a bottling company. I mean, the reality is that of, I was thinking about Keystone uh, uh, case for a while, and I said, well, there's, there's a possible argument for a transfer of wealth. The house, if it's up, is worth a lot more than it falls in a hole. But they didn't give the, the owner of the house the right to go and mine the coal. It didn't give the owner of the house the right to go and occupy the mine. The fact is that this, of necessity, involves the creation of an estate in land of another and transfers the wealth of that land to the tenant. And the argument that they then advance is that this is justified because it protects the tenant's investment. That raises at least two factual questions to which we're entitled to a trial. One is, what is the extent of the investment? Ninety-six percent of the coaches in California are 10 to 50 years old. Many of them cost $5,000 brand new. And if we have a chance to a trial, we'll prove that a lot of the coaches have no significant investment at all. And as well, what we've got is a question, can, can the end be reached? If you're going to substantially advance an end, it presumes that the end can be accomplished. And we submit, and expert testimony will be offered, uh, you cannot stop a wasting asset from depreciating. It's of the very nature of it. And this ordinance and their justification for it requires that you revoke the laws of economics as they relate to personal property. I'm, look, I'm still a little puzzled on, on assuming that rent control is permissible. What would cure the uh, constitutional violation that you see? The right to pick a tenant and charge him whatever you want, or the right to just pick a different tenant that you happen to like his looks better or something? What cures the problem in this case is to permit the park to raise rent at the time of sale so that well, they... But, but then you're attacking rent control, period. No, I'm not. I mean, what it does is that's the technique and device that the owner has available to select the identity of the incoming tenant as well as to capture, there were two sets of rights, to capture the rights to rents which are otherwise well, transferred to the heart of your case tenant. then is the inability of the landlord to raise the rent when there's a change in the uh, occupancy. No, there are two elements to my case, but that will solve the problem. The, the element of the and case... I'm just wondering if it would be constitutional for the city to say the same rent shall apply after a change of ownership, but you can put in any tenant you want to. Would that be constitutional or unconstitutional? That's conceived, that, it seems to me, is getting closer to a constitutional well, result. As long as you can choose the tenant, if I understand Even though you get no monetary benefit out of the choice, then what's the monetary loss? As, because the tenant, as a consequence, I presume that part of it also is that the tenant cannot raise the, uh, cannot sell the coach for more than it's worth. Is that part of the hypothetical? The, the hypothetical simply is that, that you may pass on any ten, tenant you want, the qualification of the tenant, but you may not raise the rent at, upon the transfer of ownership. Right. That would still be unconstitutional because, as I said, there are two classes of rights, possessory interests and the rights to rents, which are real but property. But then, then under my hypothetical, how is that different from any other rent control ordinance? You can select the, the tenant because the tenant in, in a typical apartment situation cannot sell the right to occupancy. And as I understand your hypothetical, the tenant can still charge more for the coach than he would be able to without Why the... Why can't he sell? He says, I'll leave, I'll say it's a tenant, well, I, I will leave. If, I'm, I'm willing to give up my apartment so you can rent it if you give me $5,000. Generally, that's... That sort of thing used to happen during rent control in New York, Washington, well, Chicago. It's been made illegal in a lot of places where we've got new generation rent controls as... Uh, 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 public, um, 
purpose of that legislation would have been served. I'm assuming always the rent control enables you to get a fair return on your investment, too. Well, that's not the case. What happens is that in this case, for example... Don't we have to assume it's the case because the ordinance provides for a fair return? Well, it provides for a fair return, but it also contains a provision that rents are rolled back two and a half years. So I don't know how you get fair return by rolling back well, rents. Well, do we assume that the rent, control, the rent control is invalid because the, the rents are not high enough? I am not making that argument. So don't we have to assume they are high enough to give you a return on your capital? Well, the plain fact is they are not high enough. <laughs> and, and we've got a two-and-a-half-year rollback. You didn't that in your petition. You didn't claim in your petition for certiorari that the, you didn't get a fair return on the property. Absolutely. It's never been part of the case. And well, so why bring it in now? I thought it was you're going to win nothing if you bring it in now. I mean, you win the case. You're, you're, you're going to have a, a decision that it's, it's, it's not constitutional to fail to provide a fair return on the investment. That's, that's not a big deal. Well, I, I was We've said that before. I thought I was responding I, to a question, frankly, Your Honor. And um, you, you, say that, you say that the county has, has no public the, the public purpose that the county asserts that it has, and I'd like to hear you uh, tell me why that isn't true, is, is that it, it is really just counteracting what would be a market imperfection. And that is when a tenant leaves or wants to leave, it's very expensive to cart off this, uh, uh, this mobile home that, uh, that isn't worth very much money anywhere else. And hence, the, uh, the landlord can, in effect, extract, extract uh, from the uh, 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 would-be departing tenant uh, a payment in, 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 in order to uh, um, um, ex- uh, obtain the, the profit from, from, from that inconvenience. Well, first of all, you know, this case is here on the pleadings, and those aren't facts that are part of the record, and they hypothesize that as a purpose, but the reality is that the, the coach has a certain value, a box value, that's determined by traditional methods of evaluation like the Kelly Blue Book. And that box value is obtainable whether it's on a pad or off the pad, but that's all the, the tenant owns. So the maximum exposure that the tenant faces, as pointed out in the Hirsch v. Hirsch article, is the cost of moving. And the cost of moving, if it turns out to be $1,500, translates into a $12.50 rent increase per month. That's the maximum leverage that the landlord has over the tenant under those circumstances. And for that, you don't give a $77,000 estate in land in order to protect against that kind of overreaching, which is what is occurring under the present rent control ordinances. I think as well, and to, on somewhat on point there, is that their argument also is a new wrinkle that high rents cause distressed sale prices. But the reality is that, in fact, what we have found, the only systematic study is Hirsch v. Hirsch, that no coaches are selling for below blue book value anywhere in the state of California but for two rural jurisdictions where the plenitude of spaces apparently down, puts a down, a down pressure on the selling price of coaches. But secondly, as lo- a matter of logic, The park owner can only raise rents at the time of sale. He wants the sale to occur, and as a consequence would facilitate the sale. And third, it violates the close-fit notions of uh, Nolan in any event, because if you're concerned about the park owner depressing prices so that he can buy the coach, pass a law that says something like the park owner can only buy at blue book value and not less. Or, if you're concerned about a third person coming in, say to the third person, or say to the park owner, you can only charge rents that are char- uh, charged in comparable spaces in uh, areas that are near us in non-rent controlled environments. Let me just make, make sure. So, so y- it would be constitutional for the state to pass a statute saying that no more than the blue book value can be charged? Um, no, you can't buy for less than the blue book value if you're the park owner in order to avoid the, the suppose, sales that distress. Suppose my statute, you have a, a statute which says the tenant can charge no more than the blue book value. I don't know if that would be constitutional because what I think would occur there is that the tenant would argue that you're, uh, uh, the ordinance creates the power for somebody else to take their property for less than its value. I mean, that's conceivable. But, it, you know, it looks like a typical uh, rent control case or price control case to me. I, I suspect it's a, uh, it's a constitutional exercise of power. But, but in that case, the, uh, your clients would not receive this value that you're complaining that you've lost here. Within the context of a mobile home coach, that's correct that they wouldn't have the um, monetized rents transferred to the departing tenant, but they would have lost the right to control occupancy. They would have lost the right to exclude. So there's still a taking, even though you control the price of the coach and it can't be sold for more than blue book value. So there would still be a taking even if under the rental agreement 
the tenant, uh, as a matter of contract, could not sell for more than the blue book value when the tenant left? You'd still say there was a taking here? No, uh, it depends on uh, what the provisions of the lease were with respect to assignment and a variety of matters like that. Um, well, if what if the only re relevant provision were the, 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 uh, the limitation on sale price to blue book value, other things being equal, other, other things being equal to, to what you have alleged, would you still say there was a taking? Has the tenant, uh, uh, does the lease agreement provide that the tenant has the right to assign or not assign? Is that written in the lease as well? I don't know, because I'm looking at well, who I has presume the right to the, I presume the tenant can do exactly what the tenant can do now, except the tenant cannot uh, reap the windfall. It still would be unconstitutional if what occurs is that we are limited to uh, controlling the access to the property because we no longer have the ability to essentially act as a veto power by requiring a rental agreement from the new incoming tenant before they come in. In any event, what you can't do... I think you've answered the question, Mr. Gigello. Your time has expired. Thank you, Your Honor. Mr. Phillips, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Petitioner's counsel has explicitly conceded, both prior to this uh, appearance and here before the Court today, that if this case involved merely rent control, there would be no serious constitutional issue posed. Petitioners prior to this argument seem to have conceded because they did not challenge the state statute itself that California's residency law, which requires park owners to permit homeowners to sell their homes in place and to uh, lease those properties to an incoming home purchaser, is itself not unconstitutional. I assume that concession had been based on the Connecticut decisions that this Court had summarily affirmed in the past. I understood him to say that the same, essentially the same provision was in the rent control ordinance, and that's why he didn't challenge the statute. Is, is that right? Do I misunderstand? Yeah, he did say that. The problem with that argument, Justice Stevens, is that the rent control ordinance in Escondido simply fills in interstitially where the state statute otherwise doesn't control. So by its own force, at least as things stand right now, that there is no provision that you could enforce through city law to guarantee the holdover tenant's rights under those circumstances. Those rights are derived from the state law. It's only in those areas where there's no homeowner subletting arrangements. The case would be just as strong you know. if they repealed the statute. You're saying that he just hasn't read the whole ordinance. Well, the problem if they repeal the statute is then you have a statutory interpretation question of what it means to say that where the protections of the state law do not apply well, if they don't apply because it doesn't exist, I don't know what the city would do well, with it, that. It's one thing to talk about someone, your opponent's concessions. It's another thing to argue your own case. I, I think you're really arguing your own case. Now, I, 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 what, what you're saying is perhaps that he should have conceded, but by, I, I agree with Justice Stevens. I don't think he did. Fair enough. Although I don't, I don't read him to have challenged in any of his briefs directly and exclusively the notion that the holdover tenancy provisions that are embodied in the state law are by themselves unconstitutional. Certainly no, as, as I understood his argument, he was saying that there are these two, nine, two courts of appeals who have reached these conclusions, neither of which has been prepared to condemn the holdover provisions by themselves. And in fact, the Ninth Circuit expressly recognized that that's a very different case. So as you may be right, it's not a concession, but it seems to me pretty much settled law at this stage that those two forms of regulation are clearly permissible. Where petitioners, I think, now urge the court to draw the constitutional line is when these two forms of otherwise perfectly permissible regulation overlap. And in that case, their argument is that this is no longer even a more serious regulatory takings issue under the Fifth Amendment, but that these two forms of regulation are mystically converted into an occupation of physical property and therefore requires per se condemnation under the Constitution. There are two fundamental flaws in the petitioner's arguments that will be the main theme of my argument today. First, the presence of more than one form of regulation by a governmental entity may complicate the regulatory takings analysis, but it does not convert the regulatory scheme into an occupation or into physical invasion. And it seems to me it particularly does not raise any more serious constitutional concerns here, where each layer of regulation is designed to protect a segment of the society that is clearly requiring protection by the government because they are unable economically to protect themselves. This leads me to the second flaw in the petitioner's argument. And that is that they do not have a legally protected property interest that they claim to have been taken. 
I heard counsel today indicate that there's an estate in land, that there's a property right, that there's a massive shift in economic resources. I heard all of those things. What I never heard from him is what it is that was taken. What is that property interest that the state would recognize? He said it was the right to exclude others from his property. But he has. Owner's property. Well, he had. I mean, he does say. I understood. That was what he said was taken. Well, I didn't understand him even actually to have said that. All I heard him say was in more general terms. I do think it's fair to say from his brief that there has been an argument that a right to exclude from the property is a problem. Of course, the difficulty that that poses is that that same right to exclude would create problems in civil rights laws, and yet he conceded quite plainly that at least on an occupational theory that those provisions are in no sense placed into jeopardy. And it's simply impossible to reconcile an argument that says that those statutes are clearly permissible, those occupations, in quote, not troublesome at all, and yet this one, which involves simply sort of economic regulation, is suddenly rendered a per se unconstitutional act. I think the argument he's trying to run, I must, as I understand it, is that it's one thing to eliminate a right to exclude. It's another thing to take it from me and give it to somebody else, that somehow the latter constitutes a taking even though the former doesn't. And what has effectively occurred here is that the right and the economic value of that right has not just been eliminated, but it's been taken from the park owner and given to the tenant. And it's an interesting observation, Justice Scalia, because it's not clear to me he really does say that, because in response to a number of questions about what would happen if that amount were then controlled subsequently, what would the outcome be? So there is no transfer of money from the mobile homeowner or mobile park owner to the homeowner tenant. And he said, well, that doesn't eliminate the problem. So that's not a central element of the case at some points. At other points, it is a central element of the case. It seems to me that we have here a fairly slippery legal theory, and I submit to you that the reason you have a slippery legal theory is that you're trying to take what ought to be analyzed under regulatory takings theory. These are regulations. There may be more than one, but they are at core regulations, and trying to slip them into an occupation theory. And the reason he has to do that is because he's challenged this ordinance on its face. And we can listen about Mrs. Morrison, and we've certainly heard a lot about her both here and in briefs prior to this case, and we can talk about whether or not it's possible to get out of running a mobile park, mobile home park, and we can talk about whether or not the rents are just and reasonable. But the truth is petitioners chose to bring their challenge facially. They chose to make this an occupation or physical invasion case because they required per se condemnation. At what point do you say they chose to do that, Mr. Phillips? Certainly their complaint in the Superior Court just said a Fifth Amendment taking. It didn't opt for one theory or another. And the complaint was sustained. Demer was sustained without leave to amend. My reading of their complaint, frankly, is that it is a much more focused complaint than what you described, Mr. Chief Justice. They describe in fairly close detail the legal reasoning of the court in Hall. It follows in the wake of Hall, and it sounds very much like Hall. They had in mind a physical occupation theory. But even if they didn't abandon it at that point, although it's still a facial challenge, it remains a facial challenge. There's no basis upon which to go and examine these property interests in an individualized context because there's no individual claim. You can't say that a statute that guarantees fair, just, and reasonable rates is facially unconstitutional because we may not get them. But you said a moment ago in your argument that one of the purposes of the statute was to give benefits to people who were economically needful of them. Now, you know, perhaps that's something that's an issue that might have been tried, isn't it? Well, with all respect, no, Your Honor. I don't believe that's an issue for trial because if the state government or the local government makes a judgment that there are individuals within their jurisdiction who require protection, that is precisely what this initiative and ordinance were designed to accomplish, and there's no dispute about that part of it. That's what it was intended to accomplish. It is not the province of a jury years later to conclude, based on economic theories propounded by the petitioners and their hired counsel, 
to say that the legislature was wrong. You say that is not subject to uh, uh, any sort of review in the courts, that that determination by the legislature? I don't say that it's not subject to review by the courts. What I say is it's not subject to factual adjudicatory review by the courts. That is, the legislative judgments, of course, are open for this court to analyze, just as the court has analyzed a whole host of, of, of legislative actions. And then the, the rational is the basis, standards. the rational basis for uh, for for uh, uh, implementing those judgments. No, I mean at, at least uh, uh, it, it, even if if you don't take testimony, it is certainly open to say that uh, uh, this is irrational. That there is no way that a legislator that legislator that had the objective in mind, which you express, would have chosen this as a means to do it. Isn't I, that I, argument at least open. The means, uh, the, the the relationship between no the rational basis. I think it is much more difficult for me to envision the notion that a jury would come back after the fact and conclude that the evidence before the legislators was insufficient to support the legislative judgment and that that's a basis upon which to declare legislative acts unconstitutional. I do agree with you that under Nolan and other takings cases that look for a substantial relationship between the means and the ends chosen, that is subject to a serious inquiry. But again, that's that's not a jury's inquiry. That is for this court to undertake. And therefore, it is appropriate to dismiss a complaint mm-hmm. at, the, at the outset if that court made the judgment that the means-ends relationship was adequate. And that analysis, of course, is subject to subsequent review by this court. I, ha- I have no quarrel about that. I don't think, however, the question of whether or not there is a legitimate state interest is a jury issue. As I read, well, as I read Williams, Williamson versus Op- Lee Optical, right. uh, Justice Douglas speaking for the court, hypothesized interests that well, you, be served. Tell us how, how the means-ends uh, relationship is adequate here. Absolutely. The, let me say, as a, as a sort of initial matter, it, it is far from clear to me that the Nolan issue has been preserved and is in this case at all. This case came up on a physical occupation theory, and I don't perceive Nolan, which looks to the substantiality of the state's interest in the, in the fit as part of a physical occupation theory. So uh, I, I, I interpose that objection initially. But as it happens, the Nolan inquiry in this context seems to me relatively simple. We have a group of residents within the city of Escondido who have placed a tremendous investment. Mr. Jagello can uh, demean that investment if he chooses to by saying it's merely thousands of, a few thousand dollars one way or the other. But the truth is for people who are in the average age of 64, a few thousand dollars is a significant investment, I think. Uh, suppose you had a scheme in which the state was a required party to any negotiation. And if the uh, Tennessee is sold, uh, the landowner gets the blue book value uh, of, his, uh, of his improvements, and the state gets the balance. Would that be lawful? And the state takes that money? Yes. For its own the purposes? The state takes this premium. Uh, that sounds uh, sort of strikingly like... Uh, Webb's fabulous, fabulous pharmacy to me, where the interest of the state is unrelated to the to the money that it happens to be taking, that it doesn't serve any purpose. Certainly not a fee for the benefit of providing the kind of arbitral arrangement. Well, so my it's, guess it's, it's, it's related in the extent to which a premium is going to be paid. It's not it's not going to be given as a windfall to the property owner if the state considers it a windfall, and it uses the money to for parks and schools, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It is reasonably clear to me that under Nolan, the state would have to come. Well, I mean, that, that's a, that may be close. That's a close question under Nolan, whether or not there's a fit isn't there. The reason that it's a close case is because that there is a property interest that's being affected by this regulation. And the question is whose property interest no, it is. No, I don't believe it's a property interest that's being affected by the regulation any more than in the, in the interpleader case. You say there's a property interest that's being affected. There's an economic interest that's being affected. Sure, there is a transfer of wealth. But that doesn't answer the takings issue of whether or not there's a protected property right that we have to deal with in a particular way. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's that, that the natural conclusion you draw, Justice Kennedy, follows uh, from that particular premise. To, to get back, uh, Justice Scalia, to the to the nexus, so we're talking is why a rational means of solving the the fifteen hundred to two thousand dollar problem of uh, uh, that it takes to move the trailer somewhere else or to sell it to somebody who'll move it. 
why, in order to do that, mm -hmm. you have to put in place a system that allows somebody to reap a $77,000 premium in sure. some cases. Okay, that's no problem. The, it, right. the, the, it is not simply the $2,000 transport fee that costs. I mean, the truth is it's also ten dollars to $15,000 transportation, but it is the entire investment in their home that's at risk at that point in time. They bought the home, they paid for it, and now they're being told by the park owner, you can't go with it. You, take your home elsewhere if you want to leave. That's fine. Go take that home. Well, you can't pay to take that home. But, so you're that, but that's a circular argument. You're, you're assuming that that's a value that's his, and that's the whole issue in the case. That's a value that's whose? I'm sorry, Justice Kennedy. The tenants. But, uh, you mean the investment in his own home? We, of course, that's a value that's his. Well, well, that's no, that's the issue in the case. I, I don't believe. Uh, well, at, at, I, at, with at, respect, at, at, at the time he signed the tenancy, it was a tenancy for I take it a, a number of years, which has now expired. And the question is whether or not the state can, by its laws, extend that tenancy and extend the right to sell it, so that the economic value that's given by the law is just. But, but, this, but, but this court has, in a whole host of areas involving economic re relationships, held that those economic relationships, in order to serve important state interests, must continue on beyond the terms of the contracts. And I, I don't think there is an argument to be made at this point that suddenly, in this context, uh, where it seems to me the state's interest is, if anything, is more substantial to protect these particular homeowners, uh, that, that, that they cannot go on and require this kind of protection. Well, but I, I'm assuming that absent any state regulation, he could not have this premium because the landlord would have a veto. So you can't just say that he has this, that the, 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 the tenant, he or she has this investment. That's the whole issue in the case. But the, the only reason he does is because of the pattern of regulation that's now before this court for review. But maybe we're talking about two different kinds of investments. The investment I'm talking about is the investment in the mobile home and purchasing that home in the first instance and placing it into the park and the improvements and the investments in making those improvements. That is sunk cost investment that a mobile home owner has put down. Now that mobile home owner wants to leave. He's picked up a job someplace else, may have passed away. In any event, has no particular in continuing interest in continuing to reside in that mobile home. The problem at that stage is that the mobile home park owner is in a position to exploit that situation and say, we're not going to allow anybody else in here at any reasonable rental rate, which means that the mobile home owner has one of two choices, either walk away from the substantial amount of money they've placed into their home or agree to sell it to the park owner at a distressed sale. And that was as much recognized, frankly, by uh, Judge Kaczynski's opinion in the Ninth Circuit uh, that, uh, as any other part of the problem. So that, that, I, that is the investment I'm talking about. That is the problem that we need to solve. Now the question is, how do you solve that? And do you have to come up with a least restrictive means no, no, but, but the fact that there is a, a, a pretty easy means, namely requiring payment of no less than the blue book value if the tenant uh, leaves the thing on the on the on the premises uh, that's uh, that's one way to do it now the way you do it is to say the tenant can sublease to anybody he wants at whatever rental he wants and keep and keep the proceeds well no the problem with the theory there of course is that there is no frozen rentals the, the park owner is always entitled to a fair, just, and reasonable rental. And if a Mrs. Morrison yes, exercises... The tenant is, is, is entitled to more than a fair, just, and reasonable rental. He's, he's entitled to keep whatever he wants out of the transaction. He's entitled to keep whatever he can get out of the transaction. The fact that, that someone has made a poor judgment, and I, and I would submit that if Mrs. Morrison lived in Escondido, it would be a poor judgment to purchase a home in a situation where the landowner remain, the park owner remain, remains free to seek and obtain fair, just, and reasonable increases in his rents and to depart from being a park owner and thereby jeopardize the, that portion of the investment. Well, seems to me that's you, just a poor judgment on you, her You part. seem to think that there's a, a pretty close correlation between fair, just, and reasonable and market price. And there certainly isn't, and that's the whole purpose of, of, of price controls. 
I, I agree the with tenant is getting the market price, which very often is is quite a bit above. But but, but the point, the question, as I understand the takings clause, is not what someone else is getting. The question is what has the park owner or the landlord lost. And as I view it, he's lost nothing to which he is entitled. I'm he lost a right to have. He's lost the right to exploit rents above a fair, just, and reasonable level. But I know of nothing in state law. I, I wasn't. I wasn't talking about the takings clause immediately. I was asking you to explain why this is reasonable regulation. If we're just approaching it as an ordinary regulatory uh, 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 taking case, something that has deprived an individual of the value of his property. Uh, but, why, but, why is this a reasonable regulation you, it, at all? It seems to me a mistake to divorce the, the ultimate inquiry of reasonableness from the ultimate purpose of the takings clause. If what we're looking at is not so much worry about the individual homeowner, but the overall interrelationships among these parties, I don't see how it becomes irrational simply to allow, certain, to allow for a certain windfall. And you Any more than it's you, irrational. I'm sorry, Chief. You, 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 you say that so long as the... A landlord is getting a fair return on the value of his investment. Uh, the state can let the windfall or require the windfall to go somewhere else. Absolutely, just as in any kind of a usury law. When you have your money, you're going to go out in the marketplace and, and obtain whatever you can as a return on it. The market will allow you to go however high you are. But for years, it's been well recognized, I think, that usury laws are perfectly legitimate means by which to. To regulate the relationships between there's, those there's parties. There's no readily imaginable means by which you could achieve the same result without that effect. But here there is. If the result, if, if, if the purpose is what you say it is, this, 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 is, this is a ridiculous way to achieve that purpose, to, to uh, permit this enormous wealth transfer. You have to do it for, for the purpose of the usury laws, but I don't see why you have to do it here. Mrs. Scalia, I'd, what I guess I have difficulty with is the assumption that somehow the statute is in its way designed to provide for this huge windfall. It may be a, a side consequence that in some instances, one extreme instance that's the only one that's been identified, there may be some who get a windfall. But, but I the, thought that's the, the methodology. Theory, that's the whole theory of your argument, that it's designed to protect these homeowners who are in, in this position. That's true. It is designed to protect them because there are other market conditions that will restrict their relationship between the current homeowner and a successor homeowner. And that makes perfect sense. I don't see why the legislature is not permitted to allow the ordinary market relationships between homeowner purchaser or homeowner seller and homeowner purchaser to restrict those kinds of of profits that you identify as, as so worrisome. I think that's a perfectly rational basis for the legislature to go. In the landlord-tenant relationship, the imbalance is so great that some restraint has to be placed on it. In the homeowner-home purchaser relationship, the market will work in a way that will constrain them. And I don't believe that it is a basis in any kind of rational relationship analysis or substantial nexus analysis that converts it back over into, the, into something else. The, the, it's important, though, I think, having now spent a fair amount of time talking about Nolan and having started with the argument that Nolan isn't really, I don't think, in this case, and only was preserved below, Sir Petition doesn't cite Nolan, Sir Petition doesn't cite Penn Central. I don't believe any of that stuff is properly before the court to turn back to the question of physical occupation, if only to identify what it seems to me are the clear flaws in the, in the argument that mere regulation can be magically converted into uh, physical occupation. In this case, it seems to me clear that there are four very serious problems with the uh, petitioner's basic argument. One, there is no occupation. The uh, landlord decides to go into the business of offering these properties for rent. That was his choice. He has the choice to get out of that business if he chooses to do so. How realistic is that choice, do you think? On the face of the statute, that choice seems to me perfectly to realistic because it, it, it has a reasonable notice requirement to allow the tenants to find alternative housing arrangements. And the only, uh, the, the only impediments are uh, the ordinary zoning and land use restrictions that would otherwise uh, apply to any property. So as a practical matter, I don't think that's, the, that, that's a, that serious an impediment. And the truth is, in most of these cases, and, it, and it's true with the appraiser's report that the petitioner's own appraiser put forward, the highest and best use for this property, frankly, is as a mobile home park. 
So I, I don't think that's an obstacle. But, there, but at minimum, there is no occupation. Second, this is not a physical act. In the physical occupation cases this court's identified in the past, in Loretto, you have the, the, the wall uh, mountings that are on there. You can physically see it. In Pumpley, you can see the flooding waters. Those are all physical acts that the government authorized in one way or another that destroyed the economic value. This is a very different kind of an animal. This is an economic regulation that looks not like the physical taking. Third, the kind of trial that the petitioners call for in this case looks very different to me than what I would expect for per se analysis. Questions about what are the property values uh, between when you have one set of regulatory arrangements or another set of regulatory arrangements and do, and do mobile homes appreciate or depreciate in value are not the kinds of inquiries that I ordinarily associate with a per se kind of analysis. They look like a regulatory type of analysis. And finally, I don't think petitioners have in any way justified, at least in my mind, why it is that the court would take what has heretofore been a, I think, reasonably useful physical occupation rule that, that per se condemns certain activities and completely uh, create the same inexactness and uncertainty that's necessarily inherent in the regulatory takings doctrine. It's the and it's your, your position, Mr. Phillips, that the regulatory takings aspect of the Fifth Amendment was not raised below and shouldn't be considered here? That's correct, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. I, I don't believe that it is in this case at this point. However, for the reasons that I, I discussed earlier, I, I, I believe there's no question that at least on a, certainly on a facial level we would prevail on that theory. If we don't decide those issues, I suppose would you just be back right away and they just re-raise them? Well, I'd hope I wouldn't have to be racing back in. Uh, Mr. Jagiello may be back I, I, they, in. They'd still be fighting about the ordinance, so on, on those grounds. On those grounds, yeah. I suppose that's right, although no one has up to now, I know of no lower court that has struck down statutes on pure Nolan grounds. As I said, in the Court of Appeals' most recent opinion, it analyzed whether or not the protection for this specific uh, homeowner uh, satisfied the substantial nexus test in Nolan, and at least that court was prepared to hold that it, that it clearly did. Well, it's also easier to justify the sustaining of a demur without leave to amend or you're talking about a, a claim of physical occupation than you are when you're talking about an invalid regulatory taking, I would think. I, I think that would generally be the case, depending on the nature of the facial uh, challenge that you make. Suppose the facial challenge is, is, uh, is, is to a rent control ordinance, Mr. Phillips, in which uh, uh, there, are, there are limits put on the rent that the landlord can charge, but no limits, whatever, upon the rents that the tenants can charge in subleasing. Would that be a valid ordinance? You think it would be challengeable on its face? You mean as an, un, as a, as an unfair... I don't know what it is, uh, but it just, just seems very strange to me that, that, that the state says we have some interest that we're furthering it, by it, preventing landlords from charging more than a certain amount. But their tenants can sublease for whatever they want. Now, what possible state interest would that achieve? In that context, I'm not, I'm not sure that there is one. But in my context, there is one, the, because, because the difference here is I have a captive seller, I mean a, cap, a captive individual. The tenant is a captive trying to sell that home. Whoever is asked to come in to purchase that home subsequently is not captive. There's a whole market out there for those people to deal with. And that, and that market can that, constrain the That's contradicted the by the fact that you have price controls. If there's a whole competitive uh, market out there, I don't understand that. Well, there, there are alternatives. If, if a not, not, if so many that, not so many that the state doesn't think it necessary to have price controls. See, it's the choice of the state to decide where there's a problem. I think the city is, is permitted to make the choice that it sees a more serious difficulty by a park owner imposing his will, essentially, on a mobile homeowner at the time of sale than it is worrying about whether the mobile homeowner will be able to take advantage of the situation in selling to another market, they, to, to another purchaser. In that situation, there is a whole wide range of markets out there to choose from. No one has to buy a mobile home. Once you own a mobile home and it's on a lot, you then have that sunk investment. That difference seems to me a perfectly rational way to distinguish between your cases. Now, your sublet... If the state believed that, it wouldn't have price controls. It would say, hey, we don't need price controls because there are a lot of options. The market will take care of that. You don't have to live in a mobile home. You can live somewhere else, so we don't need price controls. The very, the very decision to impose price controls shows that that's not true. 
But the but the prop but that's not the question here is not the general rationality of the price controls. The question here is the general rationality of distinguishing, at least as I understand your question, distinguishing between the, the unique protections afforded to the mobile home owner and the protections not afforded to the mobile home seller or per, the mobile home buyer, the, sub, the second buyer. I'm sorry. And my argument is that their market situation is very different. Now, you can say that you don't think that their market situation is very different, but it sounds to me like the kind of legislative judgment that traditionally, at least, this Court uh, has been extremely deferential to. I think the Court of Appeal was in this case, and I would urge the Court to affirm. Thank you, Mr. Phillips. The case is submitted.